0: Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell and nothing provides the world with more grief, more agony, more despair, pain, misery, sadness, and deep, unrelenting sorrow than war. As today's guest explained the last time they were on the show, that trauma never goes away, either for the combatants fighting in the war or the civilians who far outnumber the wounded and the dead in any war since the mechanization and industrialization of war. War fuels war, and as we will learn today or be reminded of yet again, war is a threat to democracy in ways we often cannot imagine. And far too often wars are waged for geopolitical reasons that rarely consider the needs of the people. These wars only seem to satiate the desires of those who are the most privileged and powerful, those who benefit from the killing while never putting themselves on the front lines of any conflagration. Often the effect of war leading to war goes unseen, unrecognized by the public. For instance, as our upcoming guest quotes Middle East Institute and specialist on Pakistan, Arif Rafiq, quote, Pakistani democracy may ultimately be a casualty of Ukraine's counteroffensive. In a few minutes, we will speak with reporter at The Intercept, Murtaza Hussein, whose writing focuses on national security and foreign policy. His most recent writing includes articles he co-wrote with The Intercept's Ryan Grimm, headlined, Secret Pakistan cable documents U.S. pressure to remove Imran Khan, the prime minister of former prime minister of Pakistan. Pakistan confirms secret diplomatic cable showing U.S. pressure to remove Imran Khan. Imran Khan booked under P- Pakistan state secrets law. Secret law for allegedly mishandling secret cable in 2022. New GOP pressure would bar. Pentagon assistance to Pakistan, and U.S. helped Pakistan get an IMF bailout with secret arms deal for Ukraine, leaked documents reveal. Murtaza has also written the recent stories, No One Knows How Many Americans Are Imprisoned in Pakistan's Crackdown on dissent. and FBI warned Sikhs in the United States about death threats after killing of Canadian activists. Murtaza was on the show most recently back in May when we spoke with him about his then-just-published work How Iran Won the U.S. War in Iraq and Trauma Never Goes Away as America Forgets Iraq War Stays with U.S. Veterans. Murtaza had also just posted the Intercept article after tide of Memoirs from Americans and Iraqi Journalist Offers Inside Account of War's Destruction. You can follow Murtaza on Twitter at M-A-Z, Maz M. Hussein, Maz M. Hussein. that's H-U-S-S-A-I-N. Support Murtaza's work on Substack at mazemhussain.substack.com. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, anything new by you? Not a whole lot, just uh, in the
1: mid-semester swing of things at Loyola University.
0: When is your uh,
1: break? Uh, fall break is Monday, October 9th. Oh, really? Yeah. So in two weeks? Two weeks already, somehow. that Fall semester always blows by. But do you work uh, on
0: classes anyway when you're in your break? Yeah. I mean, it's only a long weekend, basically. Oh, so really? It's not like spring break where they give you the full week. Oh, off. okay, it's yeah. just a few days. Yeah. So what's new by me is I know you're going to be impressed with this will. Mm-hmm. I started wearing shoes. Check it out. i wearing shoes again and I'm so hoping soon I will be back to wearing pants. In fact, look at me. I'm wearing Whoa. I'm wearing jeans and shoes. Spiffy. I know, not to say I've been running around barefoot or pantless, but my uh, many surgeries over the past year and a half included the most recent, a a surgery for a hernia that was caused by my life-saving surgery for sepsis, led me to be unable to wear pants without causing significant pain so i've been wearing sweatpants then among the many other health problems i've had over the past 18 months i actually was counting them the other day i thought it was eight i got up to 12. whoa broke right. <laughs> <laughs> including breaking my toe which uh, made it so i could not wear shoes and i had to wear sandals which i vowed to never wear in my life especially with socks yeah, with socks is a choice. I had somebody uh, say to me at uh, This Is Hell office hours last week that because I was wearing uh, so- uh, sandals with socks, I looked like an old German. An
1: old <laughs>
0: German. I don't know what we'll that will will have word. to ask
1: Sebastian about that. <laughs>
0: exactly. But today, for the first time in months, I'm wearing actual jeans, and for the first time in weeks, I have shoes on, so maybe, just maybe... I'm out of the woods, or at least on the edge of the woods, closing in on the meadow of good health. But Well, you look great either way. <laughs> I look like I'm homeless. Uh, but, uh, which, there's nothing wrong with that, no. But more important than what I am wearing and what I can now finally wear, Will, what is this week's question from Hell for our listening audience? This week's question from Hell is, what could possibly be giving you hope? What could possibly be giving you hope? We got an email from listener Wally, who is a regular at This Is Hell office hours, our Meet and greet that's really a drink and think, which returns this week, Wednesday evening, beginning around 6 p.m. and goes until about... Ten at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Don't forget, Carrie's Lounge is celebrating its 51st anniversary with its second annual 50th anniversary party all day, Saturday, September 30th. Also during the anniversary celebration, there will be the closing party for This Is Art, the art show that always accompanies our anniversary parties, which happened uh, happened in uh, July every year. Anyway, Wally writes, sorry, I got more white guys to suggest as guests, but the topics are pertinent. I heard a couple interviews with Lerone A. Martin, author of The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, how the FBI aided and abetted the rise of white Christian nationalism. Wally says it's fascinating stuff that reaffirms how the right-wing project isn't new and should not be a surprise. He also mentions here's a local guy at the University of Illinois, Chicago, Evan McKenzie, I think you have had him on pre-2000 for his 1997 book, Privatopia, Homeowner Associations and the Rise of Residential Private Government. I had a class with him in 1996, Wally tells us he's had other publications since then and a couple of works could shed some light on both overall privatization and the dynamics of the housing market. Which I have to admit, Wally, Mackenzie's work does sound fascinating. Here's what his bio states. Dr. McKenzie has specialized knowledge of private governments set up by real estate developers to run common interest housing developments, CIDs, also known as gated communities, residential private governments, homeowner associations, condominium associations, private communities, etc. He teaches a course on the law of condominium, homeowner, and housing cooperative associations at the University of Illinois Chicago, John Marshall Law School. Having written about homeowner associations since 1985, Dr. McKenzie understands the micropolitics, the internal workings of homeowner associations, as private governments, and the macropolitics, the relationship between homeowner associations and the larger community and society of which they are a part. So thanks, Wally. This is not a topic we have ever discussed on the show in our 27 years on air, so we're going to be looking into it. As for Lerone's book on J. Edward Hoover, we actually have an in with Lerone, so booking him on the show should be pretty easy. Our in is that back in August, we spoke with journalist Clark Randall, who posted the Boston Review article, Bond Villains, how a little understood feature of urban finance, municipal bonds, fuels racial inequality. Clark assisted in the editing of The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover and told us he can help us in booking Larone. So, thanks for reminding me, Wally, because with everything going on in my life, I completely forgot. However, Wally, while Dr. McKenzie is definitely white, I can tell you Lerone is definitely not Wally, and everyone look for Lerone to be a guest on the show after we get back from our one-week break during the uh, first week of October, as I will be out celebrating my birthday by having an impacted wisdom tooth extracted. So, happy birthday to me, I guess. Coming up the Biden administration's role in the ouster of Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan and its connection to the war in Ukraine and an IMF bailout. We will also have this week in Rotten History. Will will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. News that scares the news. This is hell and talk about news that scares the hell out of the news. Especially mainstream establishment, media, press, all that kind of stuff Documents reveal that the Biden administration applied pressure on the Pakistani military To oust former Prime Minister Imran Khan Who the military has imprisoned in order to keep him and his political party From not only winning the upcoming Pakistani election But from even being able to participate in it And if you think that's bad, and it's really bad The whole nightmare actually gets worse Returning to this is hell. It is our honor and pleasure to have back on the show, reporter at the Intercept Murtaza Hussein, whose writing focuses on national security and foreign policy. Welcome back to this is hell, Murtaza. Thanks for having me. Uh, you can follow Murtaza on Twitter at Maz M Hussein. It's H U S S A I N, and support uh, Murtaza's work on Substack at Maz M Hussein. So back in early August, you reported the intercept: the U.S. State Department encouraged the Pakistani government in March, on March 7th, and I'm sorry, in a March 7th, 2022 meeting, to remove Imran Khan as prime minister over his neutrality on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, according to a classified Pakistani government document, document obtained by the Intercept. How much was this covered at the time in the U.S. media or has it been since? The, the only mentions I've seen of your, uh, is of your writing, and uh, this government document is in your writing or your writing being reposted elsewhere. We know this story is getting a lot of coverage, not only uh, your writing but other reporting as well in Pakistan. But did this story get coverage in the U.S.?
2: So it was, yeah, as you mentioned, it was covered a lot in Pakistan. It became a big uh, scandal over there, as well as in India as well, too, because they're also interested in their neighbor and so forth. But in the U.S., notably, not that much. And I think I have uh, understand the reason for that, partially, because this took place under the Biden State Department, and there's such an intense polarization in U.S. politics that I think that had the media, and I'm not saying the media as a monolith, but had, let's say, CNN, MSNBC, a large establishment outlets had a means they could use to criticize the a Trump administration or a Republican administration, I had a feeling they would have covered it a bit more extensively. Uh, the story also in Pakistan, everyone knew about this document. It's called the cipher document, and people have been talking about it. Imran Khan has been talking about it for about a year and a half. So the public is very, very primed to know about this or hear about this, and they want to know about it. Whereas in the U.S., I think most people didn't even know about this issue. It wasn't really an ongoing issue they're aware of, that uh, you know, the U.S. has been accused of removing Imran Khan from power and effectively a coup. So you know, it didn't fluff, slide into an ongoing story in their narrative. So I think that uh, the fact that it was not politically useful to anyone in the United States uh, contributed to the relative and quite notable absence of coverage of the story in the American press. Uh, It went very viral on social media and in the alternative media, and of course abroad and mainstream publications abroad, but it was not picked up in the US. And I think that that really, to me, underlined the very, very great importance of alternative media, because there are a lot of stories which are well-documented, well-reported, Uh, even supported by official government documents, which are ignored by the press uh, at large uh, from various political, economic, and uh, social reasons.
0: You use the word coup. Do you think that that is why... This is not being covered because, I mean, you go back to the history of the uh, overthrows of other governments around the world that the United States has been involved in, going dating back to 1953 and even before. The United States has been involved in dozens and dozens and dozens of coups. Often, those coups are not reported in the U.S. establishment media and U.S. establishment press. So, do you think this is just a historic consistency that continues to this day of the U.S. media? Uh, refusing to or not being willing to report on things that could be considered a coup conducted by the United States?
2: Yeah, well, you know, let's look at the actual circumstances of events here uh, in Pakistan. So over the past year and a half, after Imran Khan was removed uh, under pressure of the military, he's been saying that effectively the U.S. had been behind this, and he used the term regime change quite often. In the course of these events, Imran Khan had you know, for other reasons, over dispute or dispute over foreign policy, he'd fallen out with the military. The military in Pakistan obviously is a big uh, political power broker behind the scenes. So he was in conflict with them. And during the course of this conflict, there was a meeting which took place between State Department officials and their Pakistani counterparts in which they effectively threatened Pakistan and said that if you do not remove Imran Khan in a forthcoming vote of no confidence, which has already been scheduled, we are going to, you're going to suffer, basically, you're going to suffer, and, you know, our relationship is going to be deeply impacted. On the other hand, if you do leave him in power, if he does stay in power, sorry, if he is removed from power, uh, our relations are going to improve, and the State Department official, Donald Liu, uses the phrase, all will be forgiven if he's removed from power. So, you know, if you come to a country which is very dependent on the U.S. for various political, economic and military reasons, uh, really, the U.S. is a part of the governing compact of Pakistan, along with some civilian leaders and the military, and you vote so strongly that the country is going to suffer. If you said, effectively tell Pakistani leaders, you know, nice country you got there, shame something happened to it, kind of defies belief that that wouldn't have some impact on their decision making process when Imran Khan is in a fight for his political survival, which at that time was still uncertain. So to say it's regime change or a coup, you know, it's not to say that it was like Operation Ajax in Iran in the 1950s or you know, the coup against Allende. I think it was more, and I think this is quite common and more common than those type of more extraordinary incidents, that what the US does and what the US did was that they identified a political conflict already existing in Pakistan and put their considerable weight on one side of the scale and that in this case resulted in precisely the outcome that they're seeking, which is the removal of Imran Khan in a vote of no confidence shortly after this meeting took place.
0: But during his campaign to become prime minister, he, as you note in your article, he was supported by the military. So did Imran Khan turn on the people who supported him? Did he campaign on any of the issues that uh, have made or led uh, the military to oust Imran Khan?
2: Yeah, so Imran Khan rose to power with the support of the military and, you know, the military put pressure on other civilian parties to kind of make way for him, but he fell out with them over various issues. I think the military was looking for much more of a puppet leader that they can control and use as a civilian face to push through their prerogatives. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, well, well, not unfortunately, unfortunately, but just what happened was that he had very strong opinions on Foreign policy on Pakistan's relation to the rest of the world, uh, various domestic matters as well too, and he was not as pliant as they're hoping for. So, you know, unfortunately, uh, Pakistan has a democracy on paper, at least had one on paper, Uh, but behind the scenes, the military has always been had a very very strong vote of who gets to run the country. So, stemming from that, he could not but come to power without their support. And, you know, that's not to say he wasn't popular. He's was very, very popular with a strong segment of society, both liberals and conservatives in different places. Very interesting cross-section supporters he has. Uh, but, you know, that popularity was not enough to keep him in power when he fell out with the military. And now what we're seeing is the very, very violent and forceful dismantling of the same political party, the Pakistan, Tarik, and Uh, which the military originally helped put together and uh, format their rise.
0: (laughs) That's really incredible that uh, somebody who they were supporting to Be the Prime Minister and the party that he was from that they helped create, that they would then uh, oust that party, make it essentially illegal, and arrest the, the leader of that party, Prime Minister Imran Khan. You write that the political struggle escalated on August 5th when Khan was sentenced to three years in prison on corruption charges and taken into custody for the second time since his ouster. Do we have any idea of how baseless or not those corruption charges are? Because... Corruption charges are pretty easy to come up with, it seems like. I mean, we've just seen a similar thing. I don't want to say that they're ex- the exact same thing, but we just went through the exact same thing with President Lula in Brazil. So do we have any idea of how baseless or not those corruption charges are?
2: Well, there's a widespread perception that the charges are heavily politicized, and you know, these kind of charges are a useful political tool in Pakistan, in many countries, as you pointed out, to get rid of political rivals. You know, it's Pakistan, unfortunately, has a very, very corrupt political system generally. And corruption is so endemic in the military and civilian leadership. It's kind of the air that people breathe, unfortunately. It's a very unequal society as well, too. So, you know, it's interesting because I wouldn't really, and I think this is a perception which is shared among a lot of people, is that Iran Khan does not stand out as a particularly personally corrupt or financially corrupt Pakistani leader. You know there are very, very fabulously wealthy Pakistani leaders in who've served recently who might serve again uh, in the military, certainly as well too. So it seemed like these allegations came up. they're they're about state gifts as well too. Like improper storage or improper story or accounting of state gifts. It seems like they came out very conveniently and it didn't seem like they had a great degree of substance behind them. It seemed much more so that they're being used now because Imran Khan is no longer useful to the military. He's the enemy of the military at this point to get him out of office and make make, not just imprison him, but also make it such that he can't run for office again in the years to come, because all the signs show that irrespective of the accusations against him, He's very, very popular and remains so among the majority of Pakistanis.
0: So, what do, what explains that popularity? Because uh, you were mentioning earlier how it goes across the political spectrum. Why is Prime Minister, uh, former Prime Minister Imran Khan, popular? Whether the person is conservative, liberal, or outside of that spectrum.
2: Well, you know, I say it doesn't really match onto the scales of. American political politics. So Imran Khan is a very popular leader. You can call him a populist. So people kind of often say, well, he's like Trump, Or he's like Bernie Sanders. And I would say, well, no, he doesn't really doesn't really map so so cleanly. Uh, I would say that Imran Khan is sort of a protest vote against the existing political establishment. Pakistan's typically governed on the civilian side by you know usually one of two big families, big you know almost feudal families who control the country and seem to trade it back and forth. They're grooming their children now on both sides to take power in the future. Uh, people are very, very tired of that sort of dynastic politics. And Imran Khan, as a private citizen, had a very, very good record among Pakistanis. He was a sports star for many, many years in cricket, which is his favorite national sport. Uh, he was a notable philanthropist. He had a cancer hospital, which he endowed and uh, continues to operate which as a you know, active personal charity, he's a very, very popular individual in Pakistan for many, many reasons. And he's very, very charismatic as well, too. And he sort of voices the aid of uh, the Pakistani people in many ways in terms of their populist sentiments about their role in the world and about the society they like to see. Is he an effective leader? I think that's a much more difficult question. And I think that uh, there are many, many compelling criticisms of his actual accomplishments in office and his economic record, certainly. But, you know, he's sort of a voice, people are looking for a savior. And I think that's very sad when a country's brought to a position looking for a savior, because it's not really how, it's not always the most effective way to effectuate change. But I can see why people have despaired of the existing political establishment and look for someone like him. And like I said, that spans across different ideologies. It's not just, many urban liberals love Imran Khan, many Conservatives loving Khan. It's a very, very complex and uh, different sort of situation than typical pol- pol- polarization you may see here.
0: And you write that the dynamics of the relationship between Pakistan and the U.S. described. In this uh, cipher diplomatic cable were subsequently borne out by events. In the cable, the U.S. objects to Khan's foreign policy on the Ukraine war. Those positions were quickly reversed after his removal, which was followed, as promised in the meeting, by a warning be, or a warming. Sorry, warming between the U.S. and Pakistan. So, what was Khan's position on the Ukraine war? Was he supporting Russia in his statements or in his words?
2: Well, so this is the interesting thing because everyone knew about the cipher document and the allegation that it included pressure by the US to remove Imran Khan on the Pakistani government, but no one really knew what it was about. What was the actual dispute that they raised over Imran Khan? And it turns out it was about a stance on Ukraine. Now, Imran Khan had, you know, been talking about Ukraine for some time in the context that he said that Western countries are forcing Pakistan to take a side and you know, th- more or less pressuring them to take a side in the conflict. And in Khan, what he wanted, what he said publicly, and what certainly neighboring India had done, he wanted to replicate, was they would taken a very neutral stance in the conflict, with the view of the European conflict, which is not directly about them. And he didn't want to side with Russia or with Ukraine, he said that publicly. And that seemed to antagonize uh, the U.S. They really wanted both countries to take a side, India and Pakistan particularly Pakistan, which is more you know economically uh, but for institutional reasons economically and politically dependent on U.S support. So effectively uh, this was the source of the dispute. and Imran Khan had also, on the eve of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, arrived in Ukraine in in Russia to uh, meeting with Vladimir Putin, which he later denied and you know denied right away in fact had, had lead. Anything to do with the war is a coincidence. He said it was planned for some years in advance, but it didn't look very good and certainly antagonized the US State Department. So, in this meeting, the State Department official Don Liu very forcefully raised criticisms of the staff, of what he's called an aggressively neutral stance on the Ukraine war under Imran Khan. And he attributed this policy to Imran Khan himself personally. And very notably, not long after this meeting took place, uh, General Bajwa, who was at that time the head of the Pakistani military, he contradicted Imran Khan's stance on the Ukraine war in a public statement at a security conference conference in Islamabad, where he took very, very forcefully condemned the Russian invasion. And it was a bit strange, because how often does a general publicly contradict the political position of, you know, the prime minister of the country who's was supposed to be following, and not long after that, Khan was removed. So it's very clear that this dispute was telegraphed to the US, the telegraphed to Pakistan by US diplomats, ended up affecting how Pakistan itself viewed this conflict. And now it's a very prominent arms supplier to the Ukrainian side of the conflict.
0: You write that uh, Lou again. That's Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs, Donald Liu, warned that the situation wasn't resolved. If the uh, if the situation wasn't resolved, Pakistan would be marginalized by its Western allies. Lou said, "I cannot tell you how this will be seen by Europe, but I suspect their reaction will be similar. Any that Khan could face isolation by Europe and the United States should he remain in office. What effect would such isolation?" Isolation have on Pakistan And more importantly, its people Is, or at least was Lou's suggesting economic sanctions Which have been shown to be as deadly If not more than actual war While also contributing to what is being called A migrant immigration or refugee crisis Which is really a crisis brought on By economic sanctions and war Do you know what Lou might have been Referring to when he was making these threats As far as, as you write Making life tough for For Pakistan
2: Well, you know, I think it's not so much to do with the general public of Pakistan, but at the elite level, uh, that's where more of the pressure would directly manifest. I don't think that this relationship with the U.S. has much bearing, for the most part, on the day-to-day lives of Pakistanis, but certainly does on Pakistani elites, especially the military. They depend on U.S. military aid. They depend on political support or at least cover for certain policies from the U.S., and they need to keep the, their own is, political economy is based on outside infusions of cash to maintain a very warped economy that's you know beneficial to the military, beneficial to elites and keeps the kind of wheels of the whole machine turning. And the U.S. is a major source of that external cash. It has been over the years. So if they hear that it's being cut off or they hear that our relationship is going to be terminated, uh, that has a very determined, very alarming potential impacts in Pakistan, and you know the Pakistani military is a colonial institution, it's some re- institutional remnant of the British presence in South Asia, and as a colonial institution, it's naturally in awe of the West, and to be threatened directly by a longtime partner who they see as a partner and see in some ways as an ally as well too, a senior partner in the relationship, it cannot help but be alarming to them. So you know what the various manifestations of the cessation of pressure would be. It's hard to say. Don Liu wasn't very specific. But you can imagine, you know, an end to the gravy train from the U.S. from U.S. taxpayer money. The end to uh, political cover from the U.S. at uh, international fora, or at least, or perhaps you know, political attacks from the U.S. Mm -hmm. at international fora uh, that Pakistan could hardly could hardly sustain. Uh, you could see what the problem would be. And, you know, more of the point, and we found this out later from subsequent reporting, is that Pakistan, because of its mismanaged economy, it's very dependent on IMF loans. And arms sales to Ukraine later became a way which Pakistan convinced the U.S. to help it achieve its most recent IMF loan, which helped the country avoid a uh, short-term economic meltdown. But... Same time as allow the military to postpone elections and solidifies grasp on the country politically.
0: So why would Pakistan's support for the war in between Russia and Ukraine be so important to the United States? The United States has a huge military industrial complex. We have a huge arms industry in, here in the United States. Why would the United States, with all of its largesse, with all of its money and wealth, why would it need a, a very Poor a country like Pakistan to support them in a war between Russia and Ukraine.
2: Well, this is the thing, Uh, you know. America, we think of America as this arms-producing powerhouse, and it's true. But to these days, it's more true for advanced weaponry. Uh, You know, like more expensive, high-end weaponry for particular purposes. The war that Ukraine and Russia are fighting today, you know, unfortunately for Ukrainians and for Russians, uh, it bears more resemblance to wars of old, like World War II, World War I in some ways, uh, you know heavy wars of attrition, shelling. Uh, and the US today is not a major producer of that type of weaponry. Um, and you know as a result, it needs to cast out abroad for sufficient support to uh, to fulfill Ukraine's needs. And we've seen sh- reports from Ukraine of shortages of shells and hardware. For quite some time now, since for about a year now, I've been seeing reports like that. And a country which is a major producer or a significant producer of that that type of weaponry is Pakistan. And Pakistan has a very, very large and powerful military industrial complex, and they have arms producing, ordnance producing factories in the country. So, rather than ramping up its own production, which take a long time, costs a lot of money, the U.S. can Get a shortcut and buy directly from Pakistan and just supply those weapons from Pakistan to the Ukrainians, which is what they did. And we have the documents showing the contracts and licensing and other uh, necessary documentation for how these transactions went down. But also, you can see if you look at open source intelligence, you can see Ukrainians using Pakistani shells and for, for quite some time. You can see them, them doing this, and they fill the gap. So you know, Pakistan is a poor country. But it's a poor country. It's a third world country with a first world military and a first world intelligence apparatus. So that's quite useful. And the military has emerged as a sort of contractor for other countries, providing arms, providing security. And, you know, as I mentioned, the skewed political economy, which doesn't really work for the most of Pakistanis, it still manages to hold up this very, very powerful intelligence military apparatus which is our rendered services to the U.S., the Gulf countries, to Azerbaijan, and probably will continue working as a contractor in that way for many years to come.
0: You write that shaken by the public display of support for Imran Khan expressed in a series of mass protests and riots this May. The military has also enshrined authoritarian powers for itself that drastically reduce civil liberties, criminalize criticism of the military, expand the institution's already expansive role in the country's economy, and give military leaders a permanent veto Over political and civil affairs. So, to what extent, in your opinion, was Khan a threat to military rule, the real leaders in Pakistan? And did he run on such a campaign?
2: He did not run on such a campaign. No, he was basically the military's guy at that time. And, you know, in many ways, unfortunately, what's happening to Imran Khan today, which is, I think, you know, a very, very grievous and uh, unfortunate assault on democracy is something which happened on some scale to his opponents when he came to power the military put pressure on them to make way for his candidacy even if he was genuinely popular which he was they still pressured his opponents to make sure he got in so you know he wasn't at that time but now he has sort of emerged as an opponent of military control of the country and it remains to be seen what will happen and if he will get out of prison when he will get out of prison you know the Pakistani military has a history of executing, it has executed in the past, or prime ministers who uh, fell out of their favor. Uh, people died mysteriously in Pakistan on numerous occasions for similar reasons. Leaders of the country died mysteriously, former leaders. So, you know, a lot of things could happen. And, you know, I think later on, before Khan went to jail, but while he was out of office and getting media interviews, he seemed to sort of concede that this sort of, Zombie political system where the military controls this things from behind the scenes is not really workable. and can't really work for a country's development. But you know, challenging the military directly and winning and actually overturning their control, the deep institutional control of the country, is a very very difficult task. And I think you'd probably need supporters from inside the military who sympathize with him, which there clearly are many uh, who are willing to step aside and. Let Pakistan civilian leaders govern the country once and for all, whether that's him or somebody else.
0: We are speaking with Murtaza Hussein, a reporter at The Intercept whose writing focuses on national security and foreign policy. Show your support for Murtaza's work by supporting his work on Substack at mazmhussein.substack.com. Again, that's H-U-S-S. AI and you write that the crackdown on Pakistan's once rambunctious press has taken a particularly dark turn Arshad Sharif, a prominent Pakistani journalist who fled the country, was shot to death in Nairobi last October under circumstances that remain disputed. Another well-known journalist, Imran Riaz Khan, was detained by security forces at an airport this May and has not been seen since. Both had been reporting on the secret cable, which has taken on nearly mythical status in Pakistan and has been among a handful of journalists briefed on its contents before Khan's ouster. These attacks on the press have created a climate of fear that has made reporting on the document by reporters and institutions inside Pakistan effectively impossible. So in doing this reporting, have you ever considered your safety and security?
2: Well, you know, it's I'm a Pakistani extraction technically. I was born and raised here. But, you know, theoretically, you know, I have some um, connection, emotional connection to Pakistan and so forth but you know i don't think i can't go there anymore because you know it'd be very dangerous and so unfortunately it's like a military rule in that country at the moment and you know i think that i don't like to complain about my security generally because there are a lot of people i've worked with over the years in based in syria or based in turkey or based in pakistan or many other places who don't have the protection and benefit of western citizenship and You know, in the absence of that benefit, they do suffer a lot. Many of them killed, detained Uh, in India as well, too. I have many friends, unfortunately, in Kashmir, who are very, very great journalists and activists, uh, very, very responsible, intelligent in prison with no hope of release. So I don't really want to make it about me, per se. I have a lot of benefits and privileges being here just by virtue of that fact, being a citizen of a Western country. So I think the more... Uh, concerning and alarming thing is what's going on in Pakistan right now with Pakistani journalists. You know, some have been killed. Are you reporting on the cipher. Uh, people have been detained and disappeared. Uh, torture has been quite rampant. And that's something which I hope that there will be more focus on in the West and from the U.S. government given the small but considerable role they played, or maybe not so small role they played in actually engineering the circumstance and basically the collapse of democracy in Pakistan we're seeing it right now.
0: You also mentioned that every time there is a grand uh, geopolitical rivalry, whether it's the Cold War or the war on terror, Pakistan knows how to manipulate the U.S. in their favor, and the military does so too, as you you point out. So is the U.S. being played by Pakistan's military, and if so, does the U.S. see themselves as having any choice in the matter? Does the U.S. support Pakistan because they fear you know, a nuclear armed nation like Pakistan would otherwise become an ally of Russia. It's the devil we know rather than the devil we don't.
2: Well, I think that the military, U.S. military probably has, the U.S. government probably has an understanding that they have the upper hand uh, vis-a-vis Pakistan and their relationship uh, because of the financial aspect of it. Uh, I think as much as the U.S. military may need Pakistan right now for Ukraine, may find Pakistan useful for arming Ukraine. They don't necessarily need Pakistan the same way that Pakistan seems to need U.S. support. So I think they're confident and comfortable with that reality. Uh, At the same time, you know, I think that the Pakistani military sort of knows that this is not sustainable. They know that they can't continue to You know, amble along at odds with their neighbors, at odds with a lot of the world, seeking conflict, uh, having a dysfunctional economy. something has got to change. The question is if they actually have the foresight and the wisdom to reorient the economy, reorient Pakistan's foreign affairs. Because military guys, you know, if you look at the U.S. military, imagine the U.S. government if it was run by generals. Imagine how bellicose and aggressive and macho and in a negative way it would be. In its relations with the world. Pakistan is also a very macho country, you could say. And the military people are very macho in that way, too. And I use that term to, you know, denote an approach to the world attitudinally uh, and uncompromising, aggressive, uh, overemphasizing strategic issues at the expense of, you know, political, economic issues, soft issues, you could say. And that's what how Pakistan has in the situation right now. It has a very bad relationship with all its neighbors. Uh, and that's, a result of taking a very very aggressive stance is on thin ice with the west you could say pretty much all the time until it changes and reorients itself becomes the more you could say normal country maybe like bangladesh which used to be part of pakistan at one time a very poor part of pakistan and got its independence now it has the highest per capita gdp in south asia now as a result of just being able to govern itself effectively as civilian under civilian leadership Till it can reorient itself in that way, it's going to lurch from crisis to crisis. And I don't really have any hope that a military dictatorship could fix that. But I do hope that something is gestating or some alarm is opening up to say that this is not sustainable and it can't go on.
0: You write that the Intercepts source, who had access to the secret cipher document as a member, of, is a member of the military, spoke of their growing disillusionment with the country's military leadership, the impact on the military's morale following its involvement in the political fight against Khan, the exploitation of the memory of dead service members for political purposes in recent military propaganda, and widespread public disenchantment with the armed forces amid the crackdown. They believe the military is pushing Pakistan toward a crisis similar to the one in 1971 that led to the secession of Bangladesh. So is the military the only thing that can save Pakistan from the Pakistani military and U.S. influence?
2: Well, this is the thing. Uh, As you said, there's a lot of discontent in the Pakistani military, and it's hard to imagine the country splitting on such grounds on its own because unlike 1971, There was not a particular territorial movement of independence anywhere in Pakistan at the moment, with the exception of Balochistan, which is too small population wise to bring that about. So I don't really think that such an outcome is possible, but I do think that you have to understand the Pakistani military is, you know, unfortunately, it's probably the most functional institution in the country, probably because it eats up the most of the budget, at least as part of it. Ah, uh, but also it's a very patriotic institution, and now for the first time ever, they've really lost their support, especially among people who are normally the nationalist, uh, you know, the nationalist base in the country. So no one likes them right now. I think that really hurts their feelings quite a bit, and they like people to like them. They want Pakistanis to see them as a you know, the arm, the bearer of their country's nationalism and patriotism. And the fact that they're bleeding that legitimacy away by fighting with a guy who's the most popular leader in the country one way or another, it's really, really uh, burns them, I can imagine. So I don't really see the country breaking up on that sense, but I do see it trudging along, you know, worse and worse shape every year, not dealing with major crises, economic crises, brain drain, a lot of uh, educated Pakistanis are desperate to get out of the country right now. And climate change. Pakistan was inundated with massive floods last year. Who's talking about that right now? They're all focused on the little Game of Thrones in the capital. So, you know, without a plan to deal with these crises and think about growth and development and stability, including environmental stability, uh, they're going to be fighting over a rapidly shrinking pie. Uh,
0: They grow smaller and smaller every year. Did in any way exaggerate claims he made about the secret cable? Because he, right, the new prime minister who has replaced him was installed by the military. Shabazz Sharif eventually confirmed the existence of the cable, which they everybody had been denying, including the United States State Department, and acknowledged that the some of the message conveyed by U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Donald Liu was inappropriate. Sharif has said that Pakistan had formally complained but cautioned that the cable did not confirm Khan's broader claims? Are there broader claims that Khan was making that were exaggerated?
2: Well, so the way I make this document out is, I think it's uh, stopped somewhere short of what he's sort of been suggesting in public, which is that there was a US directed regime change operation against his government. I, I don't think it establishes that per se. That could be true, but I don't see any evidence of that based on his document. But I do think that it certainly showed a lot more than what the U.S. has been saying and a lot more what his adversaries have been saying. Uh, It definitely did show pressure on the Pakistani government remove movement. There's no doubt about it. And one could debate about the level to which that pressure was decisive. But the fact that pressure existed and the U.S. denied it and his rivals denied it, but it was happening behind the scenes is undoubtable at this point. And I would, my personal view is that, you know, it cannot have but have some effects. And maybe the battle that he was going through at that moment for political survival could have turned out differently had the U.S. said, hey, we're not taking a side in Pakistan's internal politics. what we want from you bilaterally, but, you know, your leadership and your politics is your own business. Or if they would said, don't remove them. Don't remove them. Just wait for elections. We don't want to see that. If they had said that, I could easily imagine this whole thing going down differently. And one thing to keep in mind is that at the time Khan was removed, the economic situation of Pakistan was not that bad. It was actually relatively stable, but the whole chaos caused by his removal has thrown the entire country into crisis. Inflation is staggering at this point. He was trying to address that. You know, we can agree with it or not, but he was trying to address it through, you know, looking at Russian energy sales as an option for Pakistan. Pakistan is an energy importer. It needs that. Uh, he had some hope of doing it, and the political stability has led to economic instability. Now, you know this removal of him has really, really, in the manner it was done, has really, really impacted Pakistan in a deeply negative way. And I think he's a lot more right than he was wrong. I would say, in whatever degree he exaggerated, it was less than his rivals had exa- had. You know, deceived the public.
0: You quote Shazad Akbar, formerly a legal activist in Pakistan and later an anti-corruption minister in Khan's government, telling you, I have been receiving messages through back channels since uh, uh, the ouster of Khan, uh, telling me that if I want my brother back, I should return to Pakistan from the UK and testify against Imran Khan. I'm a professional. I was hired by the government to perform a role. I'm not even a member of any party. I never thought things would come to the point that the military would kidnap my brother and hold him hostage with no chargeable offense just to put pressure on me. Akbar is currently living in the UK. You add Akbar refused the demand to return and denounce Khan. His brother remains in custody without charge. Did you think it would come to this point that Akbar did not expect? And more importantly, do you think Pakistanis themselves are surprised at how bad the crackdown has become?
2: Well, you know, good news that uh, his brother was released about two days after that article came out. And I don't know what to what extent the article was contributed to that, but certainly I know that they read The Intercept and they read the Western press and take it quite seriously. So he was released. Uh, I would say that, unfortunately, this crackdown is still going on. There's a lot of people in jail. It's a climate of fear in Pakistan at the moment. And as a result of that, you know, you can't really talk about a lot of things that are going on at the moment. Uh, a lot of people are in jail still. A lot of American citizens are in jail over there as, as well, too, without much intervention, seemingly, from the U.S. State Department on their behalf. So, you know, I think that effectively Pakistan is, Pakistan. you have to understand, it has a relatively vigorous democracy. It had one democratic culture at least in the press and so forth despite military control and subversion and uh, various other challenges over the years people had an expectation they could speak out it was not like syria or something like that that you couldn't say anything you know there's a vigorous democratic culture underneath the surface and that's basically being snuffed out we're seeing something replaced with a real dictatorship of like egypt like syria like iraq at one time Uh, where you can't say anything. The military is unquestionable and dominant. And that's something different. And I don't know if they can really sustain that. It's a very big, messy society. But that's what they're aiming at. And these sort of tactics of intimidation, including targeting people's families, unfortunately are part and parcel of that. And they've been a very effective tactic over the years.
0: So the U.S. was upset with the government of Prime Minister Imran Khan and his party and the U.S. at least played a role in his ouster being, and then him being replaced the caretaker government installed by the Pakistani military. The divide was caused by Khan's unwillingness to take sides in the Russia-Ukraine war. Upon Khan being ousted, Pakistan announced they would support Ukraine. Since that time, the Pakistani economy had been on the verge of collapse. Meanwhile, Khan and his supporters have now been jailed and the economy has been bailed out by the International Monetary Fund. And Pakistan is now arming the Ukraine military through the U.S. Is the U.S. and the West, through the IMF, holding nations' economies hostage unless they agree to support and even arm Ukraine? Or even in a larger perspective, you have a far better understanding of this than I do. Whatever foreign policy the U.S. and the IMF support, do they apply the same kind of pressure all over the world?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting because these documents really give us in a window on how the world really works in a way. Like, you know, I don't think that anyone – well, you know, I think people do know, but it's the U.S. and dependent institutions like the IMF where it has tremendous influence. They don't talk about these sort of behind-the-scenes dealings and how grubby they can be, the horse trading that takes place to – Uh, provide financial support to countries which are stuck in cycles of debt, independence, and so forth. And, you know, someone's got to pay these IMF loans back, and it's probably not going to be the military. And Pakistan looks like it's going to be the average person who's going to pay in the form of higher prices and the reduction of subsidies and so forth. So, you know, I think that it was very enlightening to see that, you know, an arms deal was actually used, uh, for the benefit of the U.S., was actually used to facilitate an IMF loan because, Gives us a sense to which these institutions, the Bretton Woods institutions, really are arms of US power in a way. And uh, I don't think that anyone can really deny that this is a lever that the US has to use with foreign countries, especially countries in the developing world, which tend to rely on IMF support more and uh, given where they are economically. It's a lever that they can use, and they use it in this case. And I think that Pakistan will have to probably go to the IMF again in the future. They deny that they'll they're gonna to need to do so, but it's very, very possible they will. And when that comes, they're gonna to need to have be in America's political good books one way or another.
0: So did the Biden administration side with military rule over democracy in Pakistan and Can we just blame the Biden administration? Is this a bipartisan policy when it comes to U.S. relations with Pakistan that the United States has historically over the last half century, if not more, uh, supported uh, the military over democracy in Pakistan?
2: I think the U.S. is indifferent if there was a democracy in Pakistan, as long as they got what they want out of it. But it's much more convenient having the military there because they'll give you what they want very, very clearly. They'll effectively give you, you don't need Democratic buy in from the public. Imran Khan's policy in Ukraine, make what you want, but the neutral policy was popular in Pakistan because people have a position that this has nothing to do with us. We have our own problems. The West is not on our side in our problems. Why are we weighing in on the conflicts and taking a side, whereas we have interests in both sides? Let's just stay out of it. That's a very popular position. in most of the world. And it's popular in India, which is why India has also taken that position and kind of gotten away with it because they're more economically resilient and they don't have a military which is at odds with the civilian leadership. And there's no divide there to exploit, you could say. So in Pakistan, you know, there's a belief that this relationship with the U.S. and the military's role has undermined independence and sovereignty. And unfortunately, because of the fact the U.S. has a privileged relationship with the military, will get what it wants out of Pakistan in a way which sidesteps public opinion, which may not always be on side.
0: You mentioned that Pakistan has been the beneficiary of billions of dollars of U.S. military aid over the past two decades, mostly to support cooperation in the global war on terror and U.S. occupation of Afghanistan. During the Trump administration, the pipeline of annual Pentagon funding to the Pakistani military was slashed considerably, though the Department of Defense continues to provide other military support to the country. Military cooperation between Pakistan and the United States has increased again since Khan's ouster with the Pakistani military now Emerging by European counts as a significant supplier of military aid to Ukraine, so does it matter who the President of the United States is, whether it's Biden or if Donald Trump is reelected in 2024 would a Trump a presidency another Trump administration what impact would that have on the situation with Pakistan and its arming of Ukraine?
2: Well, you know it's interesting because. I think that Pakistan effectively now has placed itself – well, you have to look at the bigger context. Pakistan is a very close ally of China militarily and has been banking on major Chinese infrastructure investments in Pakistan to revive its economy and stabilize its economy in some ways. Those haven't really panned out. And in reality, many countries in the developing world are very leery of China. They don't want to be stuck as a dependency of China because it's not very – be a very ruthless power to deal with and not a very friendly power, even to countries which are ostensibly its allies. So Pakistan is trying to hedge now. They desperately would like to have one foot in the Western camp and one foot in the Chinese camp, so to speak. Can they manage that? Can they manage to balance China and the U.S. Uh, against each other in a period when it looks like those two countries are be, will be headed towards heightened competition, if not conflict? I think it'd be very difficult. It would take some very talented diplomacy. And I don't know if that kind of diplomacy is something within the capability of the Pakistani military per se to pull off. But I can understand why they're doing it. You know, uh, about a year ago, or sorry, a year and a half ago, and just not long before Iman Khan removed from power, there's a very interesting story in the New York Times, uh, an op-ed by rf Farfiq, who we actually quote in our story as a cipher. And it mentions that the military, this is when Khan still in Power, the military is very put off by Khan's, you know, confrontational manner towards Western countries in public. His speeches where he said, you know, things like, I'm not going to be your slave or we're not going to be your slave in response to pressure to take a side in Ukraine. It was making them uneasy because they were uneasy with, you know, being lumped in with China and having no way out. So, you know, that course correction, you know, effectively, or for moving him as they saw it, was an attempt to rebalance and get back in the Western camp, or at least put one foot in the Western camp, not alienate them. So now the question is going to be in the long term if they can do that. And I don't know. It's a very, very tough thing, as I said, to pull off. But I can see why if a country which feels itself not confident enough to be fully independent, they need to try to cultivate multiple power centers at once. And they want to try to balance a new Cold War, if there is one, by being a party which is somehow has ends up on both sides.
0: So the neighborhood that we are sitting, that I'm sitting in right now, the Westridge neighborhood here in Chicago, along Devon Avenue, uh, just north of Devon Avenue, where actually where I live, and across the street is the most ethnically and uh, racially diverse census tract in the United States. We are a minority majority neighborhood, but a lot of the you know big part of the neighborhood are Indians and Pakistanis. When Imran Khan was running for office, there was a Three story poster of him here at the corner of Devon and Western saying, Vote for Imran Khan. Just over the weekend, I was getting reports from listeners who were saying that they saw cars driving around with huge flags that said, Free Imran Khan. Should people here in the United States who are supporters of Imran Khan? Be concerned either about themselves or about loved ones uh, still back in Pakistan. Because as you report, with the situation with the Sikh being killed in uh, the activists being killed in Canada, and the following, uh, and in that story, saying that the FBI has approached people who are Sikhs here in the United States, saying that they may be targeted by India. So, should people here in the United States? Uh, Pakistanis and people of the Pakistani da- diaspora be concerned about their safety or the health and security of their family back home?
2: Well, you know, it's a very tough question because, you know, there have been reports of Pakistani intelligence doing surveillance in the United States. Um, some journalists fled Pakistan and said that the FBI contacted them and told them they're under threat or they've come under come across intelligence saying they're under threat. So I think that it's kind of, I can't really say that there's no danger to people engaging in activism on behalf of uh, Imran Khan and diaspora, where he's very, very popular and among the Pakistanis overseas. Uh, what I would say is that the danger is probably less acute than it is over there in Pakistan. And also, you know, the Pakistani military is going to retaliate against people's families. They've done that already, too. So, you know, I don't really have any specific, particular advice, but something which I think that if you're going to engage political activism in a country which... You know, is authoritarian, unfortunately. Uh, You do have to account for that. You have to think about that and think about, you know, what's responsible and what's safe for yourself and for your loved ones.
0: One last question for you, Murtaza. We have been speaking with Murtaza Hussein. He's a reporter at The Intercept who is writing focuses on national security and foreign policy. Please go to The Intercept and just click on his name and check out all of his most recent writing, the many follow ups to his articles when it comes to the overthrow of Prime Minister. Imran Khan One last question for you Murtaza Again, follow Murtaza On Twitter At Maz M. And please show your support For his work on Substack At mazemhussain.substack.com One last question for you And it's what we call The question from hell As you know The question that we hate to ask You may hate to answer Or our audience is going to Hate your response You were just mentioning Arif Rafiq Who I quoted at the beginning In uh, the introduction to you Uh, This is the non-resident scholar At the Middle East East Institute and specialist on Pakistan. He tells The Intercept Pakistani democracy may ultimately be a casualty of Ukraine's counteroffensive. How can a Ukraine counteroffensive be a threat to democracy in Pakistan while supposedly defending democracy in Ukraine?
2: Well, uh, it's only a threat because the U.S. has used this sort of deal with the Pakistani military to turn a blind eye with their obvious crackdowns on democracy and annulment of democracy in that country. You know, had the U.S. theoretically made a deal whereby they insisted on free and fair elections and participation of all eligible politicians in those elections, you could say that, well, you know, they're trying to balance and they're trying to, uh, you know, have both in one, have defend democracy in Ukraine and also make sure it doesn't sacrifice in Pakistan. But unfortunately, they're, taking, they're being very quiet about it. They're taking basically silence about What's going on there at the moment, the crackdown of the press, the, uh, you know, imprisonment and destruction of the most popular and largest political party. So by the, by, what we can observe in the events, they are sort of taking a, uh, a sacrificial lens towards Pakistan's democracy. Not because it was their goal to end it, per se, at the beginning. I think they're maybe even indifferent different to it, but they're certainly a ranking it less important than Ukraine. And Pakistan's a country of 250 million people. What happens there is very, very important. And certainly their rights are no less important than the rights of Ukrainians who are resisting aggression and trying to defend their own freedom.
0: Murtaza, it's great speaking with you again. Thank you so much for being back on the show. You know I'm going to be emailing you in the future. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And this is just exceptional work. And uh, keep it up.
2: (laughs) My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Always great talking to you, sir. Take care. Okay, Take care. The kind of stuff that starts fights at the dinner table, this is hell. And man, if you want to start a fight at the dinner table, all you have to do is mention the conversation we just had with Murtaza Hussein. I mean, what's an easier way to start a fight with everybody, no matter their political alignment at your dinner dinner table, no matter what political party they identify with, than by saying, hey, did you know? So the U.S. keeps Pakistan for being a democracy. The Biden administration participated in what can be described as a coup to overthrow a democratically elected leader in order to force that country to not only support Ukraine in the war with Russia, but arm them as well, all with the help of the IMF, because democracy is for certain people and not for others. That'll start a fight If you learn something about Pakistan, the United States The IMF and the war in Ukraine Support completely listener supported This is Hell By becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast Which goes live on Thursdays at 10am Chicago time And is podcast shortly after Patreon.com slash Hell, Or you can show your support for our show by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can make a a one-time pledge to the show, you can make an ongoing pledge to the show through Patreon, or you could just buy some of our stuff. By becoming a Patreon member, not only do you get the bonus weekly podcast with a new monologue from me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online, you also get a secret code word that gives you a discount on all That This is Hell merch. You now also get first crack at every week's question from Hell, as it is first announced on Patreon. And our newest feature, every week, whoever is producing chooses a question from Hell for me, submitted by our Patreon subscribers. A question that I have not seen or heard until our producer asks it on the Patreon podcast. That's all on This is Hell on Patreon. And only at Patreon at patreon.com slash Will Please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far.
1: This week's question from hell is, what could possibly be giving you hope? <laughs> and it's been a popular question on Facebook. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, starting off in the hell hole... Um, Gets By the way, correct people correct. were asking me, how do you get into Welcome to the Hellhole? And I was telling them, oh, just send me a friend request because I think you have to be my friend. But you don't. All you have to do is just send a request, go to uh, Facebook and search on Welcome to the Hellhole. Go to the site and just request an invite right there. And one of the many admins will probably let you in. That's correct.
1: Yeah, I think I have those privileges. I'm not sure. But I either way. You too. Yeah. Uh, either way, uh, starting things off in the hell hole is our very own Pete Falavenis. Uh, not a goddamn thing. <laughs> All right. All right, then. Uh, I noticed some themes in these, uh, responses. <laughs> uh, Aaron D replies, the reliability of soft serve ice cream machines is improving. <laughs> right. Really? And Garrett S replied to that, except at McDonald's. <laughs> I would not know. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, uh Klaus uh, S.Y. replies, What if those aliens aren't cake? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <wow>. what? <laughs> what the hell is that? Uh, I love surreal answers. Yeah, there are a lot of them. <laughs> um, Jeff Dorchen replies, The demonetization, almost total, of Russell Brand's <laughs> brand consequent to very plausible rape and sexual assault accusations. Yeesh. 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 Yeah. Wow. If you look back at some of his old comedy, I think he's admitting some things. Yeah, it's <laughs> a
0: little creepy. It's he talks creepy. really fast, so you can't tell. But mm-hmm. then if you slow it down, you're like, oh, wait, whoa,
1: whoa. And he, you know, he's an Englishman, so American audiences kind of let them say whatever they want. Right, you so, get that accent. Yeah. Um, let's see. No Whack Wolf replies, the demon who took it, Doe. what's his, what's his name? Abandon? I don't don't, I don't understand. Uh, Garrett S. All the drugs I'm currently consuming, <laughs> like Hunter S. Thompson. That's one That's of the main one.
0: uses of drugs. That's somebody from Grand Rapids, by the way. Oh, yeah?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Rock on. <laughs> Come so uh, for the anniversary party. I met him last year. Really great guy. Awesome. Uh, Clint B. replies Barack Obama <laughs> with a link to his Facebook
1: page. <laughs> 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 Who said that? Uh, that'd be Clint B. Uh, that Clint. should probably be filed away. Yeah, we got a, lead, a leader Suscinct. right now. Yeah. Uh, the audacity of hope.
0: <laughs> audacity. Uh,
1: Cheryl W. replies, I don't know. At the Taco Bell drive-in, I saw a sign they'd run out of tomatoes, onions, and beans. I'm afraid civilization has run its course. Yeah. <laughs>
0: But if you ask the person at the window uh, if they have weed, it, it, that works out sometimes. Oh, it does? Yeah. Oh, noted.
1: It'll <laughs> help me out in the red states probably. <laughs> yeah. um, Sebastian Whooper replies, kids on TikTok. I'm not kidding. The kids are, in fact, all right. Wow. He, he does send me a lot of TikTok content, wow. and I can confirm that assessment. <laughs> right. uh, Lee H., my youngest son whose face is paralyzed from a knife attack in 2016, is getting some of his sense of taste back. This is huge. He's been stimulating the damaged nerves with the hottest peppers on earth. I hope his sense of taste comes back completely. I even have a forlorn, forlorn hope that the paralysis will go away and he can come play Woodwinds again and kiss me on the cheek again. Wow. I hope I wake up and 2016 never happened, but what are the odds of that?
0: Wow. Man, I'm getting goosebumps.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Big hug to you, Lee. Yeah. Uh, Crange L replies, "The the indomitable spirit to live one more day just to see what awaits, and that I cannot predict a future doom with certainty. And hat tip to you on your use of the cough button. Yeah, first, <laughs> I think that's my first cough button use. Um, can't prove that, but uh, and there's a whole reply chain uh, on that one. On oh, that one, oh, okay. Yeah. People can check that out. You can check that out. Uh, Patrick L, electric divvy bikes. We, I'm young again. <laughs> I hate those things. Those are terrible. Although it might be fun to take the speed governor off one of them and <laughs> that see what happens. That would be kinda of fun. Um Clay G replies Sanders as POTUS. Can keep hoping. I assume he's talking about Bernie Sanders, I not would, Colonel Sanders. I would hope so, okay. but you never know with mm-hmm. this crowd. Barry Sanders. Barry Sanders.
0: <laughs> Sanders. Could be. Yeah. 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 Sanders bumpy cake. There's a lot of <laughs> <laughs> sander's involved there (laughs) um doug v
1: granddaughters believe it or not you go doug um coffee v replies the revival of the strike unions recovering from the red scare you're here Yeah. yeah that's a good one and nick e the thing with feathers and that is all 21 responses from The Hellhole. The Hellhole. You want to go on to more, or do you think that's good enough for today? Uh, it depends on if you want to hear 14 more responses from the regular Facebook page. Uh, yeah, let's go through those. All right, cool. Uh, Anthony C. replies to the question, what could possibly be giving you hope? Uh, independent Midwest emo punk bands. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I like that. I do, too. Okay. Um, uh, Dan K., The Comfort of the Grave. <laughs> wow. uh, Marie G., Kids in Montana. Okay. Uh, Carly H., The Detroit Lions. <laughs> Never said it was a good decision. <laughs> All right. Their run game's looking scary, though. Uh, David Z., Arkansas. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. We have another Obama from Jesse N., <laughs>
0: All right.
1: No more salting my sidewalks,"
0: says Pam H. Because <laughs> global warming, warming I assume. tie
1: into last week's question.
0: All those salted sidewalks are delicious. They sure
1: are. Um, let's see. Bill H just replies with a period. <laughs> 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 like. Alright. Uh, Warren L replies the earth will be fine without humans. And uh, there's some sort of script in there that's not rendering. Um, Ande F. uh, Impermanency. (laughs) Okay. All right. It's getting a little metaphysical in here. It's getting a little bit grim here for a question about hope. (laughs) I know. Well, it's your fault, Chuck. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, Lisa MP replies, what's giving me hope? And always bordering on nihilism is the presumption, although of course I know nothing for sure, that someone is already trying to hack these. And it's a link to the Undark article about police robot dogs on <laughs> patrol. I mean, you could do so much funny stuff with that. That'd be great. Uh, um uh, Adam A in brackets. Shrugs and then delusion. Followed <laughs> by a shrug emoji. <laughs> okay. Anthony C. Oh, I already read Anthony's. Okay. Um, that's the independent Midwest emo pop, pop rock bands. Yep. Um, Fabio L. Chuck surviving his whatever medical emergency <laughs> happens next. And finally,
0: John T. Nothing. <laughs> so the person with our favorite answer to this week's hope-inducing question from hell. <laughs> Uh, They win their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can post it at our Patreon or Discord. You can email it to us at chuckatthisishell.com. You can post it on our uh, uh, Welcome to the Hell Hole page. But we got to have your answer by the end of this week's show when we're announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin, in the Moment of Truth. Will, what's Jeff doing during this week's Moment of Truth?
1: Jeff M. sees a cockfight between Weimar Dadaists and the current Maggots.
0: I assume that's Maggots. I guess so. yeah. Mm. It's time for Nasty, Gnarly, Nauseous, Naughty, Nerdy, Icky, Drippy, Sticky, Goopy, Gloppy, Gloppy, Gory, This Week in Rotten History on September 25th. 1980, 43 years ago this week, John Bonham, the highly regarded drummer of the British rock band Led Zeppelin, who couldn't spell their name, was found dead in bed. He he was found by his bandmate, John Paul Jones, not the sailor, the bass player. At the home of uh, their other bandmate, Jimmy Page, it was the morning after a long rehearsal by an upcoming tour of North America that would have been Led Zeppelin's first tour in three years. Medical examiners concluded that within 24 hours, Bonham had consumed almost a liter and a half of 80 proof vodka and and, and that after falling asleep, he had choked to death on his own vomit which does not happen if you smoke weed instead. According to the Led Zeppelin singer and frontman Robert Plant, Bonham had recently been acting depressed, and on the morning before his last rehearsal had said, quote, I've had it with playing drums. Everybody plays better than me. So again, had he smoked weed and heard me playing drums... John Bonham might still be alive today. I blame myself. Shortly after Bonham's death, the other members of Led Zeppelin announced that they could not continue without him and were breaking up the band, although Led Zeppelin did play at Live Aid in 1985 with Phil Collins and Tony Thompson on drums and again at a charity event in 2007 when John Bonham's son Jason was the drummer. In fact, they've played with Jason as the drummer on several occasions. In Rotten History on September 26, 1982, 41 years ago this week, in Elk Grove Village, a suburb, horrible suburb of Chicago, just west of O'Hara Airport, Gina Kellerman entered a Jewel Osco supermarket and purchased a bottle containing 50 capsules of extra-strength Tylenol, popular over-the-counter pain reliever. Early the next morning, Jenna's 12-year-old daughter, Mary, took one of the capsules to relieve her sore throat. Moments later, she collapsed and was rushed to nearby Alexian Brothers Hospital. few hours later, Mary was pronounced dead. Six other people in the Chicago area, all in their 20s or 30s, who took Tylenol capsules that same day, also died mysteriously. Examiners found evidence of cyanide poisoning, and Johnson & Johnson, the maker of Tylenol, quickly issued an urgent recall of the product, but it soon emerged that the capsules taken by the victims not only had been purchased in different Chicago area stores, but also came in different manufacturing lot numbers. Investigators concluded that potassium cyanide had been added to the capsules after they were already on retail store shelves Johnson & Johnson soon received a letter from a man named James W. Lewis taking responsibility for the poisonings and demanding one million dollars to make them stop. After he was arrested he confessed to writing the letter but denied actually poisoning anyone and due to a lack of evidence he was never charged with doing so. But he did spend 13 years in prison for being a dick, and extortion, and would die in July 2023. Another suspect, a dual OSCO employee named Roger Arnold, was ruled out, but later spent 15 years in prison for a shooting murder. Meanwhile, several other purchases of over-the-counter drugs uh, died of copycat poisonings in the years following the original Tylenol murders. As a result, drug manufacturers produced tamper-proof packaging to reassure the public a practice that continues to this day. So next time you cannot open a bottle of pills, remember it's because of murder, extortion, and those who want to copycat murder and extortion. Also in Rotten History, September 27, 1590, 433 years ago this week, in Rome, Pope Urban VII died of malaria after a papacy lasting only 13 days, the shortest in history. During his brief reign, he had issued one of the world's first smoking bans threatening to excommunicate anyone caught using tobacco in a church, whether smoking it, chewing it, or taking up the nose in the form of snuff, which means at some point people are smoking, chewing, and snuffing in church. Pope Urban, who was the direct sovereign ruler of the papal states in central Italy, is also remembered for having instituted a subsidy to Roman bakeries that would allow them to sell their bread at prices below cost. Finally, in Rotten History, on September 29th, 1920, 103 years ago this week, At a mental institution in Santiago, Chile, the young anarchist poet José Domingo Gómez Rojas died of meningitis after having been incarcerated for more than two months. Gómez Rojas, a member of the Industrial Workers of the World, also known as the IWW or the Wobblies, had been arrested for taking part in so-called hunger marches, which were mass demonstrations against the oligarchic rule of Chile's president Juan Luis San Fuentes. The Chilean president had responded by declaring martial law and ordering roundups and arrests of so-called subversive protesters, many of whom were imprisoned and tortured. The funeral of Gomez Rojas, which was attended by more than 50,000 people, included the reading of a poem he had written in prison titled, The Cry of the Renegade. It contained the lines, I have imagined tombs where judges and magistrates rotted and now are nothing but dust on this earth. Gomez Rojas was immediately elevated to the status of a political martyr and his memory would still be evoked years later by opponents to the dictatorial regime of Chile's General Augusto Pinochet. And if you have not seen the trailer for the award-winning Chilean movie El Conde, C-O-N-D-E which depicts Pinochet as a vampire do it now and guess the, get this it's a freaking comedy. Now, that's Rotten History, and this is how, Will, who is our next guest here on This Is Hell? Our
1: next guest on This Is Hell is Samuel Moyne, author of Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals in the Making of Our Times. Sam is Chancellor Kent Professor of Law and History at Yale University and the author of many books on the history of
0: ideas and politics in the 20th century. And it really makes you, know, it makes you understand what is happening right now with the Biden administration and Pakistan uh, and the history of the United States in the Cold War period with countries like Pakistan. You really understand why we have these relationships as we do today by checking out Samuel Moyne's book. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show podcast and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing. See, we told you so. This is hell.